Well, the title of tonight's sermon is The Song of Moses. The Song of Moses. It's not a particularly... Well, the title of tonight's sermon is The Song of Moses. The Song of Moses. It's not a particularly creative title as it comes out of just about every scripture. When you think of the Song of Moses, though, few people could claim as many diverse roles as Moses can, or Moses did, or he served for the nation of Israel. There was lots of different roles that he was assigned to or that he served in as one of the leaders for the nation of Israel. It starts, of course, with being the leader of the nation of Israel, but he was also a prophet. Moses served in the role as a priest, although briefly uh, for a transitionary period of training in the priests that would then become the Aaronic priesthood or that line through Aaron of serving in that capacity. But he was the one who served in that role as that training took place. He was an intermediary where he had a role of being the one who would go between God and the people and speak to God on behalf and about matters relating to the spiritual well-being of the people. He was an author. As most of you realize that Moses is credited with having written the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. He was a teacher. As Moses filled the role of teaching the nation of Israel many different things, a lot of his teaching has been on display here as we've been going through the book of Deuteronomy chapter by chapter. He was a poet. There's poetry written by Moses. And last but not least, he was a songwriter. And so chapter 32 of Deuteronomy shares or shows this capacity that Moses served in or this attribute, I would say, of, or role that he had or characteristic about himself that he was, in, in addition to all those other things, he was a songwriter. And Deuteronomy 32 records this song that was written by Moses under the inspiration and leading, of course, of God's Spirit. But at the end of his life, he wrote this song and it takes up the majority of this chapter 32 of Deuteronomy. Now, when you're thinking about music, many of you know that I love music, but there's generally two categories that songs fall into. Either they're happy songs or they're sad songs. Very rarely are they both, but this is an example where, although Moses' song is, I would say, you can tell me after the service if you agree or disagree, it's primarily a sad song, but it does have a happy ending. So it's one of these rare songs that contains both aspects or both types of a song in the same, in the same com- composition. And so you have this very negative aspects that are talked about in terms of foreshadowing, very negative aspects in, in mentioning and looking at the unfaithfulness of the nation of Israel, the projected future unfaithfulness of the nation of Israel, the consequences that would come from or be associated with that unwillingness to trust God. So most of it or a lot of it is very negative, but then it, you'll see, is going to end with a very positive or happy ending as in addition to foreshadowing the coming apostasy and the accompanying devastation that would occur relative to the nation of Israel, it also reminds or it's a reminder of God always being faithful. It's also a reminder of the fact that God is ultimately going to be victorious regardless of human choices and human inadequacy, human brokenness, human inability to trust God in the way that he wants them 
to trust him, inability to walk by faith and, and thus live the abundant kind of life that God had planned for them in time. It still tells the story, though, about how God isn't going to be prevented from accomplishing his purposes just because of people's unfaithfulness because God is bigger than that and God is ultimately the faithful God, the God who will one day bring things to the conclusions that he has predicted or laid out for us in his word and that God will be a promise-keeping God regardless of what human beings' pardon it might be. And so you'll see that that's, in many ways, that's a very happy way to end a song that otherwise is very sad or negative as we look at it. So let's take a little bit closer look. If you haven't already, turn to chapter 32 of Deuteronomy. And we're going to dive into this pretty long chapter, 50, was it 52 verses? Yeah, so a good chunk of Bible to try to cover here tonight. So this first section, we want to dive right in. This first section I have labeled, God's character is never the problem. God's character is never the problem the problem. And when you think about that, let's read these first four verses. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, as raindrops on the tender herbs, and as showers on the grass. For I proclaim the name of the Lord. Ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of truth and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. So there's a doxology of sorts here, this impromptu, in a way, praise for God and his greatness that comes out in these first four verses. But he doesn't start necessarily with that. He starts with this idea of listen. If you wanted to put an exclamation point on this, give ear or and hear, both of those Ideas are sort of shouting, listen up, pay attention. This is very important what I'm now going to communicate to you. And he's saying effectively, the words that I'm now going to speak, they should envelop you like the falling rain or dew would envelop everything. It would cover it completely. That's how important this is. So this idea, this word hear, and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth, that has been used to introduce important instructions and teaching throughout this book. Now, if you want to glance at a couple of them, just keep your thumb there, but turn back to chapter 5, verse 1. We won't look at all of them, but it's happened a number of different times where Moses has effectively sort of began some part of his speech or some part of the content within a single speech with these words. We see that in chapter 5, verse 1, And Moses called all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and judgments which I speak in your hearing today, that you may learn them and be careful to observe them. So here with a mindset of learning, of taking it in and applying the truths that you're being taught, the same exact thing, and we won't go to them, can be found in chapter 6, verse 3. Chapter 6, verse 4, chapter 9, verse 1, chapter 20, verse 3, where he starts out these sections of within these various 
speeches or sermons or addresses that make up the book of Deuteronomy, he, at different times, he says that, where he's saying, I'm going to call special attention to this particular truth with a mindset or a desire that you would heed it, that you would take it in with thought towards allowing God to make this true in your life, to work in you so that this could be characteristic of your walk of faith. So it wouldn't just be empty words. It wouldn't just be words that are communicated, go in one ear and out the other ear. That these could be truths that you would see the, how critical they are and you would allow me to make those changes in your life so that those would be representative of your manner of living, your way of thinking. And as we know, and we'll get to it here tonight and be reminded of of it again tonight. God is most interested not in our behavior, but in our thinking, the way our attitudes are working behind the scenes to influence the behavior that is merely a byproduct of where our heart is at and where our thinking is at. And so that's ultimately what Moses is saying here as he starts this song. He's saying, pay attention. This is very important. Listen up. And that's verses 1 and 2. As he moves to verses 3 and 4, he starts to talk about God's character and he effectively says God's character should be exalted. God's character is something that we should be reflecting on because doing so will influence, it will influence or should influence the way we respond to God's teaching and God's truth as revealed in this instance through a human author, through a human speaker. That as we reflect on who God is, as we reflect on God's character, it would directly then impact the way we would apply or digest his truth that's communicated to us. So that's what he's saying. Now, what are some of the things in this doxology, what are some of these things that he's saying about God? We'll look at verses 3 and 4. He says, I proclaim the name of the Lord. So I'm lifting him up. I'm exalting him. Now, he's saying, ascribe greatness to God. Our God. So the first thing he's really saying is he is great. The second thing he says is he is the rock. Now there's so much tied into that you could do a whole message on what that means for God to be the rock. But a few aspects of that is he's stable. He's permanent, meaning he's eternal. He never changes. He's immutable. There's no vacillation or changing or way of turning with God. He's unchangeable. He's unmovable. That's the idea behind he is the rock. What's the next thing it says? He is perfect. He is just. He is reliable and faithful. You see, most translations in place of the phrase God of truth, they have this phrase that says faithful God. He can be depended upon. He's a faithful God who is always reliable, never changes, is always right. He is always just. He is always fair. He's a great, great God. And you think about that. How would reflecting on that character then influence the way you would respond to the instructions that come from God? If you see God's goodness, if you see God's greatness, if you see that God is stable, permanent, unchanging, unmovable, he's perfect, he's just, he's reliable, he's faithful, He's righteous, he's upright, is the last two that I I didn't cover. He's righteous and he's upright. You would say, if he's that infinite, and if he's that much greater than I, and if there's nothing that compares to him, and he knows best, 
And on top of that, it's not mentioned here, but I also know that He loves me greatly, deeply, intimately, personally. That's the kind of God I have. Now, would I be much more likely to respond positively or favorably to the direction He seeks to provide in my life? Would I be much more likely to not lean on my own understanding and try to provide my own path, provide my own energy, provide my own strength, provide my own direction, but to collapse and have this posture of rest where I would depend on God to do for me what I could never do for myself? The ultimate underlying theme that is ribboned or I guess it weaves its way throughout the Bible, this idea that man apart from God's provision for him is hopeless and helpless, that God is going to have to do for man what man can never do for himself in terms of justification, but also in terms of a walk of faith, a life of faith, we would say Christian living in our dispensation. That unless man can recognize that, man cannot thrive spiritually. The message, that's ultimately the message of the Bible. And when it comes to our dispensation as Christians and the and we're talking about our identity or our position as being now because of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf and our having been now identified with His death, burial, and resurrection on our behalf, now being aligned with Him in a way where we're, we speak of we have ceased to exist, but now it's Christ that lives in and through us. That's our identity. That's our existence. That His Spirit has sealed us. His Spirit has been the down payment or the guarantee of our future inheritance. It's God's provision in our lives that makes Christian living even possible. And that apart from me, you can do nothing, but with me, you can do everything. That's the kind of mentality then that is being communicated here in a slightly different way as the focus is on Jehovah God, which is no different than the focus being on Christ's aspect of the Trinity at a future time when more revelation has been made before that amount of revelation was even available. But it's the same message that God is great, God is good, God knows best and by reflecting on His character you're more likely or you should see that He's worth trusting, He's worth depending on. So then the question becomes, do you spend any time reflecting on God's character, who your God is? Do you spend time reflecting on what you mean to him? How he's intensely interested in your life? If you don't ever reflect on who your God is or how much he cares about you or his concern for you individually, and you see that throughout David's Psalms, him speaking to this personal appreciation for the intimacy that he can have with the God of the universe, Jehovah God, the God who created him, and his understanding that God is intensely interested in him and provides for every facet of his existence and being, unless you're able to do that, you won't have that closeness with God or that walk of faith that God desires for you to have. So that's the question. Now, Mr. Eric Falstrom has been going through, when he fills in, a series of messages and lessons just refreshing us and reminding us about some of the characteristics of our God. There's great value in that not from an academic cognitive perspective, but from as we take that in in a cognitive way that we could allow that information or that truth to permeate our thinking and our hearts in a way that it would cause or bring about a greater trust or dependence on God than we had before we had thought about or considered God's character even more. Are you more likely to cast your cares or bring your concerns and give them to the Lord in a way where you're actually dropping them off 
where you're not just temporarily checking them in with God only to pick them up again later like you'd pick up a toddler from daycare where you're temporarily dropping that troublesome toddler off only to go pick them up again at the end of the day that's how many people approach prayer but if you really trusted that God was the beginning and the end of your prayer that it didn't require you to have to take executive action apart from him and beyond your prayer for him to undertake and lead and direct in your life, you would actually know what casting your cares upon him is all about. That's something that I struggle with. It's like having concerns that are a backpack that are weighing you down and that you cast up to the Lord, but you attach a piece of climbing rope to it and that for a period of time, you'll allow the Lord to carry that weight, but when you start to look at yourself and your circumstances and walk in independence from him again, you pull that load back down and you'll find yourself carrying that same load again. You see, it'd be nice if you could cast it in a permanent way on the Lord, but you'll never do that without reflecting on his character. That was a rabbit trail. We need to keep moving here. God's character is never the problem. That was our first point. Second point is this. Man's character is always the problem. So let's read verses 5 and 6 and see how man's character is contrasted with God's upright, perfect, never-changing great character that is just and fair in every way. Verse 5, they have corrupted themselves. This is a reference to the nation of Israel. They are not his children. Because of their blemish, a perverse and crooked generation, do not thus deal with the Lord, O foolish and unwise people. Is he not your father who bought you? Has he not made you and established you? So there's a series of questions there. In verse 6, that are, it's a figure of speech or it's a way to get about, I wouldn't say a figure of speech, it's, it's a way of persuasively speaking where he's making this statement saying, in contrast to God's righteous and upright, righteousness and uprightness, his greatness, his perfect justice, man is nothing like that. And he's speaking specifically to these men and women of the nation of Israel. As he's saying, there's a great contrast between God and his character and man and man's character. So though God is reliable and faithful, we saw, mankind is not. Man's lack of faithfulness is the problem. God's faithfulness is never the issue. Men are prone to, it says, corruption, perversion, and crookedness. So you have corruption in verse 5. They have corrupted themselves. He says they're blemished in verse 5 also. Perverse and crooked. Those are all words that are used to describe man's man in comparison to God and his character. So when you think of those words, corruption, perversion, crookedness, blemished, these are all words that are associated with defilement. And you ask, if God is perfect and he's righteous all of the time, he's unblemished, if God is faithful all of the time and never errs in any way. He's a great God that can be relied upon. And if that is true, and man is described as being associated with defilement, what are they defiled by, if that's the contrast you're making? Well, they're defiled by the influence of sin. We know that from the teaching of the Word of God. Now, what kind of sin? Well, internal sin, a propensity towards being influenced by desires to put self first. Desires that, although the power of that influence was broken by God's provision to meet man's 
need to meet man's sinfulness, that that was broken in a sense that man was given the ability by responding in faith to God's provision for his sinfulness, that man was given the ability to have a new birth or experience a new birth, to be regenerated, that, that because that had occurred, that new birth had occurred, there was the capacity now for that man, regardless of Old Testament or New Testament, that man now had the capacity to have a right response or to respond favorably to God. But that wasn't automatic or guaranteed. That was subject to that man's positive volitional choices, positive or negative volitional choices, but volitional free will and free choice. Will that person operate in dependence on God or will that person reject God's direction for their life and operate in a way that is independent from God? And so then as you think about that taintedness that comes from the influence of sin, that defilement that comes from the influence of sin, that ultimately is man's greatest problem. Now that's internal on one hand and then you have the external influence of sin in a satanically controlled world as man turned over the title deed of the earth to Satan in a sense and Satan is described as the father of this world and Satan is the chief liar. He was a liar from the beginning. He's the deceiver. He's seeking to convince man that they can in fact thrive in a way of living apart from God. That in fact he tries to convince them that they'd be better off without God and goes one step further and tries to convince mankind that in fact God doesn't really love them and God is not really for them and that God is actually holding back from them. And he's been trying to convince man of that from the beginning. So the influence of Satan and his attack with that, those lies in an effort to convince men that what is in fact a lie is in fact is instead true, that to convince man to abandon God's truth in favor of his lies, that in conjunction with that natural tendency to be a congenital rebel, that natural internal influence of the sin nature telling mankind to elevate and promote self instead of promoting Christ, the combination of the two is it leads to defilement for the one who is not walking with his eyes fixed on God, not walking in dependence on God's provision to meet his need for a life of faith, a walk of faith. And so what is sinfulness then oftentimes related to? If that's what's causing the defilement, what's it related to? Well, it's often associated with forgetfulness. Now remember, what is this book also referred to, the book of Deuteronomy? It's referred to as the book of remembrances or remembrance, singular. So why is that? Well, because when man forgets his God, forgets his God's character, forgets what God has done for him, forgets God's provision, forgets God's goodness, forgets God's love for him, that man is naturally susceptible in those moments when his eyes aren't fixed on his God. He's more susceptible to allowing his gaze to be shifted to himself or to the influence of the world around him that's in opposition to God and has been since the very beginning. What does that lead to? That leads to defilement. How do you deal with defilement? If man's character and unfaithfulness is ultimately the problem that Moses is holding up here in contrast to the faithful character of God, that it's man's character that's the problem, what is the solution to that? Does that mean that there wasn't an opportunity for victory available? No. It means that the way that you avoid defilement is to keep your focus on the right things and to remember 
what God has done for you when it does happen, and it will in a sin-cursed world with a sin nature, it's to deal with that defilement in a way that could cleanse you, could put you back in a right frame of thinking, get your heart and your focus back on God's provision to meet your needs. Let him direct in your life again. Get your eyes off of yourself, your circumstances, or the world around you. Now turn, if you will, because I think this is one of the best Old Testament examples of that process of having a heart that says, Lord, as I periodically stray from you and as I'm defiled by the world around me, how do I find that renewal that I'm looking for? Turn, if you will, to Psalm 51. I started turning ahead of you because I, I might be the slowest one up here. Psalm 51. Many of you are familiar with this. We're not going to dwell on it a lot, but this is a psalm of David that was written after his sin with Bathsheba. This speaks to David's desire to be restored to a place of a right relationship again with, with God. He'll pick up in verse 1. Have mercy upon me, O God, According to your loving kindness. That's the kind of God we have. We don't have a God who wants to hold our trespasses against us. We have a God who wants to restore us to a right relationship with him. According to the multitude of your tender mercies. What beautiful language. Blot out my transgressions. But here's the cleansing part. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. And cleanse me from my sin. What's the key to all this? Just like I've said, this is the key to 1 John 1, 9. For I acknowledge my transgressions. If we confess our sins, the focus, the great weight of that word confess is acknowledging our sins. To say the same thing as God, to agree with God that we haven't been thinking or operating in a way that's in alignment with His plan, direction, and His purpose or His will for our lives. For I acknowledge my transgressions. How can God cleanse us if we don't even see that we're dirty or that we've picked up defilement, that our thinking is off? How can we reorient our thinking if we don't see that the thinking is out of alignment with God's thinking? And he goes on to say, And my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned. Now that's an interesting statement because were human beings affected by David's sin? Yes. They were. Human relationships were affected by his decisions, but the sin was against God. Interesting way of seeing that. And done this evil in your sight, and you have found and you may be that you may be found just when you speak, and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me, meaning I come by it naturally, I come by it honestly. Behold, you desire truth. In the inward parts, God wants to not just make us look good on the outside. God's after the heart. Man looks at the outward appearance. But God is after our heart. And in the hidden part, you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. There's a picture of discipline there. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. This is my favorite part of this psalm. Create in me a clean heart. You notice he doesn't say that my heart is naturally clean. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me, meaning you could have a steadfast spirit that 
gets distracted, that gets off course. It needs then to be renewed. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Recalling that in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God would come and go upon certain individuals. It wasn't a permanent indwelling. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Is that talking about justification? No. It's talking about sanctification, practical sanctification, in time progressive sanctification, however you want to say it. And uphold me by your generous spirit. Where's that strength going to come from? Not from self. Verse 13, and I will teach transgressors your, your way. So as our thinking becomes right and in alignment with God, God can now work through us to have an influence on other people in our lives and sinners shall be converted to you. Again, changing their mind. To be converted to means to change from one point of view to another. Verse 14, deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my praise shall forth shall show forth your praise. My mouth shall show forth your praise. I'm tired. For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. We'll stop there. What is God after? Symbolism? Is that what he's after? Is he after rote habit? where you're going to go through some sort of a mechanical process day after day with a sense that that will make you right with him? Or is he after an active, personal, intimate relationship with him in time that is characterized by acknowledging or admitting when you get off track and asking for him to give you wisdom, to restore you, to give you a clean heart to help you to trust him more so that those parts so that those parts of you that keep influencing or causing you to go in those directions they would be less attractive they'd be less influential as you would be more influenced by him you'd be more focused on him you'd be directed in a greater measure by him and so that's the idea there and that's ultimately i would say that would have saved if individuals within the nation, so God is usually dealing with the nation collectively, the nation of Israel. But as you think about, most of you know how this story ends. The reality is that God has, he's laid out a plan. He's laid out a will, a desire for the lives of the nation of Israel. No, not the lives, the, the collective mission of the nation of Israel to be a nation of lights for him, to be a reflection of his character. He's given them a bunch of different illustrations as to if we just had some guidance from you, God, if we just had some direction from you, we could, we could do that. So he gave them the law. He had given them human government. That didn't help. He had given them a conscience. That didn't cure the problem. But then mankind effectively is saying, well, if you could just give us some specifics and be very detailed about it, that would help us to be what you want us to be. And so he gave them the law. The law was very specific. It identified and it, it pointed to what God's standards of right were. And it was a good thing because it represented and reflected God. But was man able to heed that? No. The nation, were they able to be the lights that God wanted them to be? They could have been, but they weren't. And so then the question becomes, was it a possibility that could, that, that could have happened? Yes. Just like it's a possibility for you to choose you this day whom you will serve. 
Is it going to be the power of God working in and through you, or is it not? Now, if the nation of Israel nationally had consistently acknowledged their errors and turned back to the Lord, as they do at different times, but if they had done that consistently and that had been a pattern of their lives so that they didn't get too far, they didn't stray too far, they didn't become too apostate, they didn't become too hard-hearted or hard-headed towards God, would the outcomes that are going to be discussed further on in the song have even happened? The answer is no. They wouldn't have had to happen. Could the individuals within that nation have chosen to respond in faith to God, acknowledge when they got off track, seek God's guidance and provision in their lives again, walk in dependence on Him, walk by faith and not by sight? Could they have done that individually? Yes. Did some of them do that? Yes. The Bible says that there's always a faithful remnant within Israel even. But collectively, they weren't known for that enough that God's chastisement or God's discipline was withheld. It wasn't withheld because collectively they weren't fulfilling the mission that God had for them. So let's move on. Recalling God's faithfulness is critical. So when you're thinking about how are we going to be successful going forward, we're going to be successful going forward, as Moses has said, and he has carried this theme throughout Deuteronomy. We're going to trust God with what's in front of us by, tr- by seeing how reliable and trustworthy God has been with what's behind us. Let me say that again. We're going to be more likely to trust God with what's in front of us by reflecting on how God has provided and been faithful with the big things that are behind us. And so we saw that in other parts of Deuteronomy where there's this emphasis placed on all of these great things that God has done in their lives in the past. So let's pick up in verse 7 and we're going to see that reminder again is critical, that recalling God's faithfulness, it's critical to remembering Him in the present. Remember the days of old, consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you your elders and they will tell you when the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the children of Israel. For the Lord's portion in his people, Jacob is the place of his inheritance, the special chosen people. Verse 10, he found him. That's an, it's a way of referring to the whole nation. He found him in a desert land and in the wasteland, a howling wilderness. He encircled him. He instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. As an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings, so the Lord alone led him, and there was no foreign God with him. He made him ride in the heights of the earth that he might eat the produce of the fields. He made him draw honey from the rock and oil from the flinty rock, curds from the cattle and milk from the flock, with fat of the lambs and rams of the breed of Bashan and goats with the choicest wheat, and you drank wine, the blood of the grapes." So what a long end, but at the same time very succinct reminder of God's incredible provision for this nation. There's a lot that is being pointed to there as you're looking at these reminders of God's past faithfulness to prevent forgetfulness. And that's the value of having a greater life experience. You see in verse 7 that the younger people are supposed to look for reminders of that with the older people. Well, why? They have a greater life experience. There's more examples where they can point to God's faithfulness in their lives because they've lived more life, more life. And so that's just an interesting thing about the value of even 
institutional wisdom or history within an organization that there's been people who've been around for a while. Frankly, as we even look at the makeup of the leadership here at church, we have quite a few people in leadership at our church who have been around for quite a while. When something difficult comes up, they're in a greater position to say, God dealt with that. God undertook for that. God was faithful in that. God didn't abandon us in that. God is bigger than that than somebody who might be younger. So it's a nice, diverse group that has younger people and older people associated with it. But that's just a passing thing. Now, if you look at verse 10a, the idea there is without God, things are bleak. Things are really bleak in a life that doesn't have God in it. What is it described as? A desert, a wasteland, a howling wilderness. Isn't that a great way to describe life apart from God? A wasteland and a howling wilderness? But God always provides for his children. So the contrast to life without God is, well, what was life like with God? And he's reminding them of this. I hope you're being encouraged by this. I hope you see yourself in this as, without God, your life is a wasteland. Without God in it, your life could be described as a howling wilderness. Some of you could use that to describe your pre-salvation life, that it was a wasteland. It was a desert. There was nothing but despair in it. And I know some of your testimonies, and I know some of you would say amen to that. It was empty. But then God took you and he passed you from death into life, and he made you alive. What what had been hopeless now was filled with God's hope. The future was now bright, whereas before the future was bleak. Now is that true in Christian living too? In a walk of faith? Yeah, life lived apart from him, regardless of which dispensation, regardless of which example, regardless of which person you're pointing to in the Bible, it could be described as a howling wilderness, life that is spent apart from God. But what's the alternative or or in comparison to what? What's life like under the hand of God, under the provision of God, under the leading of God? Well, look at these words in verses 10 through 14. I'm just going to summarize, but look for them as I'm saying these things. He found you. He encircled. These are all description of what God has done. Great verbs here. He found, he encircled, he instructed, he kept. I'm going to have to insert a couple of words, but the idea is he hovered over. He covered with his wings when we get to the eagle analogy there. He carried, he led, and much, much more. Think about that description of life with God in it with God directing and undertaking. He found, he encircled, he instructed, he kept, he hovered over, he covered with his wings, he carried, and he led. You see, nothing was overlooked. I spoke on Psalm 23, verse 1 at senior high camp. I didn't get through the vast majority of it. I'm sure that will be a big surprise to you. Maybe you'll get to hear that whole thing. But that psalm could be summarized. It's a summary of the whole psalm. Verse 1 is a summary of everything that follows. But it's very straightforward. It says, because the Lord is my shepherd. Now that's the idea. I know the new King James or King James says, the Lord is my shepherd. But the idea is because the Lord is my shepherd, and many translations have it that way. Because the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. Now that's a psalm written in the Old Testament. Because the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. Well, why? 
And then the rest of the psalm goes on to give specific illustrations and examples of all the different ways that God undertakes to provide for his own. What a great psalm. And that's the idea here. That's what Moses is trying to remind the people of. That's the only thing that can save them from distancing themselves from God and from becoming independent from God and from turning their backs on God and becoming apostate and putting their trust and confidence in other things, foreign idols, foreign women, all these other things that we'll see ultimately tear the nation apart. God is saying in advance, the thing that could save you is to reflect on who I am and what I've done for you and how much I care about you. And the question is, will we do that in our own lives? Well, we see in this psalm that Moses predicts that the nation will not do that. The people naturally and foolishly turn from the Lord. Let's read verses 15 through 18. But Jeshurun, which is a a name being used to describe the nation of Israel, grew fat. He could have just said, but you. But you grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, you grew thick, you are obese. (laughs) What a funny way of saying that. You got pretty full of yourself. You got filled to the point where you didn't see that you had a need for me anymore. That's the idea. What happened then? Then he forsook God who made him and scornfully esteemed the rock of his salvation. They provoked him to jealousy with foreign gods, with abominations. They provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons, not to God. To gods they did not know, to new gods, new arrivals that your fathers did not fear. Of the rock who begot you, you are unmindful. You have forgotten the God who fathered you. That's some powerful stuff there, friends. That's the issue in their life. That's the issue in our lives. By nature, we forget God and we foolishly turn from Him and that is what ultimately leads to our own spiritual demise. Now we'll see in the context of the Mosaic Covenant, it alludes to their physical and national demise, at least in the temporal sense. In the eternal sense, God is going to keep his promises, his literal promises to the nation of Israel. Those are unconditional, many of them. But in terms of the conditional aspect of the blessing associated with faithfulness to him in the context of the Mosaic Covenant, there's going to be consequences associated with turning from him. But how foolish. You see that word but? So we just talked about God's faithfulness and being reminded of God's faithfulness in the past and how critical that was in 7 through 14, those verses. But then on the heels of that, but despite all that God has done for you is sort of the idea, what did they do? They abandoned the God who made them. They made light of the rock of their salvation. They stirred up his jealousy by worshiping foreign gods. They provoked his fury with detestable deeds. They offered sacrifices to demons. Now that's a paraphrase of all of those clauses we just looked at. But the biggest issue is they abandoned the God who made them. You see, the the focus of all of those things was on behavior, but the real underlying cause is laid out with those two phrases towards the end there. You are unmindful of and have forgotten God. To be unmindful of God is to to not be thinking about Him, to not be concerned with Him, to not be meditating or dwelling or focused on him. So you're not thinking about him, which is part and parcel of the same thing, which is that you've forgotten God. Now what did that lead to? That led to all the behavior that was negatively described ahead of that. You see, the root cause of spiritual failure in every believer's life is always 
tied to have you forgotten God? Are you not trusting your God? There's no spiritual success apart from Him. You can't live life with Him, which is the key to spiritual success, if you have presently forgotten Him. And that's the purpose of reminders. That's why you come here on a Wednesday night. Some of you, long day of work. Many of you, many hard things going on in your life, distractions. Many of you having trouble even staying awake here. But you come out to be reminded about your God. That's the purpose of a Bible study on a Wednesday night. It's not easy to avail yourself of that. But it's always beneficial. Same with opening your Bible in the morning when you've got other things to do or you're tired. Same with making a decision to flip on a station that's going to sing songs about Jesus or a preacher that's going to preach about Jesus or some kind of a narrator who's going to read God's word to you as you're driving. All of those options are available. Compared to what alternatives? Well, listening to something that could never satisfy your soul. It could never encourage you or strengthen you. Something that will never be focused on the eternal realm or the heavenly realm. That's always fixated on the temporal realm or the things around us. Those are the options. And so what Moses is getting at is the cause of your failure is to have forgotten your God. And that's true in our lives. Now who the Lord loves, he chastens. This is we're going to cover in a big chunk here. Verses 19 through 35. There's not a real direct application here to us in the sense that there's a direct application with what I just said. Who the Lord loves, he chastens. But we're not operating in the, under the law. We're not operating in a conditional covenant with God in the Mosaic covenant. We're not looking at specific physical consequences necessarily uh, associated with our unwillingness to trust God, but they were. And the success of the nation in time, not, not just eternal success, but the success of the nation in time and the prosperity of the nation in time, it was tied to trusting God, obeying God, following God in a re- love response to seeing how much he cared about them. And we've covered that at length in other places in Deuteronomy. So if they were to see God's love and goodness and provision and care and concern for them, if they were to see that, then they would trust him. And if they trusted him, they would want to let him lead their lives. And if he led their lives, he would bring about prosperity in their lives in the physical sense, not just the spiritual sense. But for us, the universal principle is who the Lord loves, he chastens. And so the enduring principle is that the Lord always seeks to restore his wayward children. That's always God's desire. And he talks about how he's going to discipline them in great detail. For the sake of time, I'm going to let you read through that on, the, on your own. It's not going to go well. Apostasy and turning from the Lord is going to have real consequences in time that's going to lead to the devastation of the nation of Israel and it's being foretold right here. It's been foretold throughout the book of Deuteronomy. This is a book where God can, where future prophets could look back and they could say, don't talk about how you didn't know. You knew. I told you what would happen. I predicted what would happen. Now God is gracious. He's long-suffering. He's merciful. He's loving. If you will just turn back to Him, get your eyes back on Him, this could be avoided. But they didn't, by and large, and eventually it led to the ten northern tribes being known as the ten lost tribes as they were conquered by the Assyrians. Later on, by the Judah, Benjamin, and Judah being 
conquered by Babylon, being taken captive. Most of us know how that story ended, but let's just fix it on the bigger principle here. The enduring principle is that God is wanting to use discipline or chastening the lives of his children to bring about a change of thinking. His motivation is love, but his method is discipline. Who the Lord loves, he chastens. His motivation is love, but his method is discipline. Proverbs 3.11 through 12, this is repeated in, I believe, Hebrews. But Proverbs 3.11 through 12 says, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as the Father, the Son, in whom he delights. So verses 23 through 27 foreshadow aspects of the discipline that apostate Israel will face in the future. Now, verses 28 and 29, though, talk about this idea that failure and the corresponding discipline or consequences associated with that failure, it's avoidable. So when you look at verse 28 and 29, you see this, for they are a nation void of counsel, nor is there any understanding in them. Oh, that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would consider their latter end. Meaning, or implied there certainly, is that if they had thought about it, if they would have understood or had wisdom or listened to counsel or had counsel available to them, this all could have been avoided. Now what would that have required? It would have required wisdom, teaching, understanding, things that, things that were not present consistently throughout the nation of Israel's history. Now verses 30 through 33 talk about how God will use Israel's own enemies to bring about his judgment. And then verses 34 and 35 say that but, there's a great but there, but it is ultimately God who is chastening or judging his children. So he wants to make it very clear that it's not these enemies that are having any great success against his people. He's the one who ultimately is allowing that to happen, not them. So now what is the point of discipline? So if God chastens those that he loves, what was the point of, is the point of discipline? Well, it's intended to bring about changed thinking. Verses 36 through 38, we see this. For the Lord will judge his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone. What is that talking about? Independence. About having self-reliance. When that's no longer true and there is no one remaining bond or free, he will say, did you learn your lesson? He does it through sort of questions that are probing questions. Where are their gods? The rock in which they sought refuge? Who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings? Let them rise up and help you and be your refuge. The idea being that God is a God who wants to provide comfort, but only when people come to the end of themselves. God's compassion is always present even in chastening. He will provide comfort. That's a, that can be translated compassion. So he will provide comfort. He will comfort them after having achieved the desired result. What was the desired result? To teach them something. But that couldn't happen until they come to the end of themselves. So when you think about your own life, to the extent your defiance, pride, independence, and stubbornness dictate or determine the amount of, to some extent, your defiance, pride, independence, and stubbornness, they dictate 
or determine what amount of discipline is necessary to effectuate the changed thinking that God is after. You bring it upon yourself. Are you, are you sensitive to your resistance? Are you desiring that God would be able to get a hold of your thinking easily? Do you pray even for that? Do you pray, Lord, change my thinking? Create in me or renew in me a spirit that is sensitive to you. For, for what purpose? It would be to your benefit that you would be sensitive to God's chastening in your life so that he wouldn't have to go further with it, make it last longer than necessary, that at the slightest pricking or provocation from, or, sorry, uh, redirection from the Lord, you would see the error of your judgment or of your ways. You would, you would see that you've been off track, that you haven't been trusting the Lord. How many of you have children that are easily corrected? Any of you? Some are. Some are more easily corrected than others. We have one hard-hearted kid right here tonight. Uh, there's some kids that are known for being stubborn, though. They, they're known for, it's really hard to, to get a hold of their thinking. I was one of them. That's why I can relate to that. My mom would discipline me for refusing to accept her direction in my life. And I would look at her defiantly and say, I'm going to tell dad on you when he gets home. I only did that once. But are you praying for a renewed, steadfast spirit? So then, as you come to some, some of the end parts, you realize that God alone can help and overthrow your enemies. The climax of the song, it's, this is the climax of the song's warnings. It's God alone that can help you. So when you look at verse 39, it says, Now see that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. The idea there is, see carries the idea of understand or grasp this mentally or completely. And what are you supposed to grasp? That God alone is worthy of your trust, dependence, and worship. He says, I do, and there's two contrasting pairs here, I kill, meaning I'm the one who doles out justice and judgment, but what else does it say? but I make alive. I wound, but also what does he do? I heal. Now in the context, what, he's ta what is he talking about? Discipline. So in the context of causing chastening, that for a moment, the Bible tells us in the New Testament, it, it's unpleasant, but what's the intended result and the long-term benefit? The long-term benefit is that it heals, that it renews, that it brings us back into a place where our thinking is corrected and that ultimately is to our lasting benefit. Verses 40 through 43, God says that he's ultimately going to judge Israel's enemies even though he used them to discipline them in the past. And when you think about that, no one can withstand the Lord. He's going to be victorious in the end. There's great hope, confidence, and joy in that realization. That's what I mean. The song kind of ends on an upbeat note. The upbeat note is that God is going to provide atonement for his land and his people. You can rejoice in that. That's God's goodness. That despite the way this story is being foreshadowed to go and the way we know it goes with the nation of Israel, God's a promise-keeping God. God will be victorious in the end. God will keep his promises to Israel. God will keep his promises to you. Do you trust that? 
Does that provide you comfort? Have you been encouraged by that? So then he, verses 44 through 47, he says, take these song lyrics to heart. Don't just let them go in one ear and out the other. He says, set your hearts on all the words which I testify among you today, which you shall then pass on to your children. Command your children to be careful to observe all the words of this law. So don't just allow these truths to be useless. Take them in, consider them, and allow God to make changes in your thinking. This is a continuation of the heart focus found throughout this book in the Bible in general. So when you're thinking about verse 46, and he said to them, set your hearts on all the words which I testify among you today. God is after heart change, friends. You can see that throughout the Bible, but you see that throughout this book of Deuteronomy. In chapter 4, verse 29, he said, seek the Lord with all your heart. In chapter 6, verse 5, he said, love the Lord with all your heart. He repeated that in chapter 13, verse 3. He repeated it again in chapter 30, verse 6. He says, serve him with all your heart. In chapter 10, 12, chapter 11, 13. And he says, fix your, fix Moses' words in your heart. So Moses is speaking then. Fix his words in your heart in chapter 11, verse 18. That's the thing that God's after, is your heart. Now he says, it's not a futile thing for you to do. It's not a trifling matter. This is as serious as anything could be. Take heed of what I'm just saying to you about how you'll have success in spiritual life by remembering God's faithfulness, by trusting God to direct your lives, by being willing to acknowledge when your thinking is out of alignment with Him and allow Him to make changes in your thinking. Respond to His chastening in your life instead of doubling down on your hard-heartedness and stubbornness. And why is that? Because this is life and death. These decisions are life and death. It says it's your life. These are life or death decisions. In time and physically to them under the context of the covenant, physical death was certainly a part of that too. But from our perspective, whether or not you'll choose to set your heart or allow God to make heart change within you by reminding you when you're out of alignment with his will, by you being reminded of his past faithfulness and his character and comparing that to your own inability and, and complete lack of faithfulness, your inability to do for yourself what God alone can do for you as you've tracked those different sections that we've gone through tonight. That will create, that will give you life. That's the difference between spiritual life and death. And then 48 through 52, we're not even going to look at it, but it's Moses is directed to his gravesite. He's told, this is where you're going to die. So the Song of Moses, I don't know. We covered a lot of it tonight, skimmed, skimmed across a little bit of it. I don't know, not the best song lyrics I've ever looked at, but not the worst either. A lot of good truth in there. Probably not a song I'm going to find myself singing. Pretty complicated song to learn. Maybe that'll be our song of the month for next month. Deuteronomy 32 but great principles to be reminded of. The Lord is the only one worthy of your worship. He's the only one worthy of your occupation and focus, the only one worthy of your dependence. Apart from Him, life is always going to be less satisfying than it could be. The consequences of rejecting Him are more detrimental than you even realize. But they can be avoided. They can be mitigated. But it requires that you change your mind easily and not be hard-hearted and stubborn like the nation of Israel ended up being. And restoration is always possible because your God is a compassionate 
God, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we could spend together. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the reminders that we've had here tonight. Pray that they would impact our lives and be useful in the days going forward. Pray that we would even pass them along to our children. In Jesus' name, amen.